if you refuse or otherwise fail to comply um, with any of your terms and conditions of probation or parole, uh, you can then be pulled into jail and then you're awaiting a court date. All right, welcome on to yet another episode of the Rex Crim Show. And today, uh, say hi, Mambo. Hi there. So um, let's just start off from the get-go. Uh, help us uh, help us understand where does the name Mambo come from? I, I think that's referencing... Uh, love of dance, love of music. Yeah, uh, pretty soon in my time in prison. Uh, yeah, about a little over 10 years ago now. Uh, I was one of my early cellmates was a man via Lobos and he learned mm-hmm. that I like to sing and dance. And when music came on, I would just be moving around and he joked, he's like, you're like that little penguin from happy feet. <laughs> he goes, I'm going to call you Mambo. So yeah, Mambo was one of my nicknames through prison. It stuck, I guess, uh, ever since Oh yeah, you hit that note before I could uh, even give context, but, uh, but I'm glad you did. I imagine we're going to be talking a lot about, um, uh, prison, your experiences leading up to it and through it. And, and, and since then in email correspondence, you've shared with me, uh, it's been almost a decade that you've been out of prison. And so much of this conversation, I guess, will be about how to avoid maybe prison in the first place or how to keep out of it uh, if you've been in ever before? Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, proactive anything about the criminal justice system as far as, yeah, avoiding getting caught up in it. But also, I love talking about prison to anybody who wants to hear about it because while uh, the American prison system is not typically a healthy or good thing for a lot of reasons, uh, you know, for myself, it was a really positive experience. It's um, it's not too often that you hear that, uh, although I, I guess I have to challenge my own uh, presuppositions. I mean, I, uh, I come from a, a side of being interested in studying penology responses to crime and uh, by way of that uh, understanding uh, prison through, through research and through, uh, you know, s- stories that I hear about those who are on the inside. Um, but, uh, but you've got that visceral experience that I think is, is more nuanced and it's helpful in understanding, you know, the effects of, of, uh, of what prison does. So could you give us some context about, uh, your stay, you know, what, what were you in for? What led you up to that point? I was, uh, I pled no contest for an assault and didn't comply with my original sentence, which was a probation sentence. Uh, so I didn't comply with the, the alcohol and the treatment program. Uh, so that ultimately got me sentenced to prison th- for three years. And I did, because of good time, I did something under three years for prison. And was there, um, was there I mean, how old would you have been at that time? 22. And was there some sort of precursors? Um, I understand uh, from our correspondence offline. I mean, there's there's something to be said here about trauma and sort of overcoming overcoming adversity in youth and the sort of overlap between victim offender um, labels. Can you shed a bit of light on that? I imagine we're going to talk about tribal issues. You mentioned how the Truth and Reconciliation Day just passed. 
uh, up in Canada and we were, we recognized Mambo. My, my apology. I think there's the, the slightest lag there with our internet connection, but we did, we are just connecting now days after the first uh, truth and reconciliation uh, annual holiday in Canada. Um, but I'm interested in hearing about your experience in the U S so carry on. Yeah, we recognized that uh, down here on my reservation. I'm on a reservation in South Dakota. And so, yeah, that, you know, it comes full circle that, uh, you know, I was born on a reservation in a family with generations, you know, generational trauma from generation addiction and all sorts of abuse. And uh, even though we moved to a different state when I was pretty young because my mom didn't want me to grow up, she's not a tribal member. She didn't want me to grow up in that situation. Uh, you know, you can, you can move, but if the problems are in your family or, you know, the unresolved sort of issues, uh, yeah, those unfortunately followed us, uh, when we moved and resulted in a lot of dysfunction and that sort of stuff. And, you know, it resulted in a a little bit of interaction with the juvenile system. Uh, but then after the, my little bit of time with the juvenile system, uh, I was a high achiever in high schools, enlisted in the Navy, uh, was honorably discharged from the Navy. Uh, but unfortunately, even that little bit of time in the Navy, just uh, drinking is a very uh, big part of military culture. And that really no matter how much I had been warned my entire life, like, Oh, you're, you know, you have this family history and, and you can't drink without it being a problem. Uh, you know, I, I threw all that, all those warnings to the wind and drank a ton and, and carried that into college when I went to college. So that's kind of brings you to right there before, um, me going to prison, which was an alcohol related incident. I see. I, uh, I'm trying to, um, imagine there's sort of this interplay between, um, <clears throat> military service or the military culture, as you say, and, uh, and, and what the prison sort of intends to instill, I think in, through discipline, you know, it, it might be described as sort of a para military operation. Do you see, do you see overlap between those two things? Yeah, that's actually... <laughs> I'm really happy we got to get to that so early in the conversation is uh, one of my most, the groups I'm most interested in are people in the system who have a service record uh, because the overlap is massive because of these issues, unfortunately, because of PTSD and other issues that are the results of service. A ton of service members do end up in the criminal justice system and a lot of them are in prison. So yeah, a lot of my friends uh, were veterans in the service. And um, <laughs> to look at further intersectionality, uh, queer veterans are, is like queer veterans who have been involved in the criminal justice system. Like that's my <laughs> intersection is those folks. Fascinating. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, there's so many things uh, to unfold here. The idea of uh, mental health, um, um, you know, stress, uh, trauma, um, PTSD, as a result of you know one serving their their country and then uh, being serviced 
uh, by their state or, or their country, depending on which prison they find themselves in. Um, it, it sounds like uh, a roundabout way of providing welfare to folks. And yet you describe your experience in prison overall in positive terms. Um, could you unfold that a little bit more? Um, is it Was it all good or are you just uh, one of the exceptional ones who have been able to frame it in in a, in a resilient sort of way? I, the, all the disclaimers, because yeah, it's a, it's a horrible, unhealthy system that often just makes people's situations worse. Uh, but for myself, it was a positive for a lot of reasons, you know, obviously as someone who my primary addiction was alcohol, uh, someone who had a struggle with alcohol, it was great to just be in this situation that forced me to detox. Uh, and the other factors that really played into it being a positive experience for me is that I was going to school for education and human development to be a teacher. So I went in, I like to say, I went into prison with a really full toolkit. And so you have me going into prison with this full tool toolkit and finally being sober for the first time as an adult, uh, put those two things together and I was really able to make it into a great experience for myself. Could you tell a, a bit more about your interest in um, working with people with a service record and, and your particular interest in, um, in queer veterans? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a under underappreciated, almost an unknown demographic. I mean, it's a, it's a dirty secret of America that so many service members do end up doing time or, you know, with any kind of record at all because of these issues. So just developing awareness is the first and foremost. And then, yeah, if there were, boy, I really hope in my lifetime we can start to be a little more proactive about it. But, you know, at this present moment, working with, for example, a group called How to Justice, um, you know, if we can at least help provide better resources to you know, veterans and all, all formerly incarcerated people as they work on exiting jail or prison. But, uh, you know, in particular, that's a, a segment of the population I have a passion for. I want to talk more about your passions and lead uh, the conversation uh, eventually to this idea of trail club. Um, briefly, maybe just outline... Um, outline that project? Well, um, I, in preparation for this conversation, I thought about it and I'd say one of the biggest interests in being on your show and talking with you today is just for anybody who's listening, who was interested, might be interested in a 5k run or triathlons, uh, myself and some of my other, uh, advocacy like attorneys that I'm working with in my area. Uh, we're looking to organize a 5K run for South Dakota for criminal justice reform and, and advocacy. So, but really, if we could expand that and have it be on a more national level, uh, that's where my heart and mind are a lot these days are connecting with folks. Uh, as you can see, I can draw a straight line from 
veterans and fitness and self-improvement and criminal justice and all that sort of stuff. Uh, rucking has been a trending thing. So uh, not that this is necessarily rucking, but there's been a lot of people finding community. For example, say you don't have a spiritual community or a faith practice. So, uh, you know, fitness and just being outdoors with people is a great form of therapy and a great form of community that I want to help uh, promote. Right on. And and this is something that is in its developmental or planning stage or. Um, um, yes, very. Where can people where can people learn more about this if they want to sign up? Today? I would I don't want to you know volunteer you as secretary, but uh, since we don't have any good websites or phone numbers at the moment, if they want to reach out to you and you can forward them to me. That's where we're at right now. Marvelous. Okay, so I'll I'll, I'll happily liaise, and if folks listening to this are interested in learning more about Trail Club, um, in the early stages, uh, connect uh, um, rexcrimshow at gmail dot com, and um, and we'll connect you with uh, Mambo. Great. So I, uh, uh, maybe we can come back um, and and hit on uh, Trail Club a little bit more, and and where you sort of uh, envision this going. Um, you know, a noble cause, clearly, in, in sort of bringing about awareness for criminal, the need for criminal justice reform. Uh, although you're describing, in, in your particular case, the criminal justice system having worked, it, it seems to have, you know, um, I mean, if there hadn't been that intervention, what trajectory would you have, would you, uh, you know, where would you have placed yourself if you hadn't been in custody for a period of time? That is a really good question. The what if game is, uh, oh boy, <laughs> it's. Uh, I've heard some of your other guests mention. You know, you can really like. I've heard people discuss with you on your show processing anger or sorrow or that sort of thing. Like, it is a really dangerous question. I'm happy to entertain it, but I do want to also disclose like that. What if game is a really uh, tough one. Uh, you know, I. I easily could have been dead. I tell people that I'm, when people ask me about what I think about my time, I say, uh, you know, thank God there wasn't, for example, a drunk driving incident that cost someone their life. Like, so the what if, if uh, the legal system or, or yeah, if I hadn't had an intervention of some kind like this, uh, yeah, it's, it's horrible. It's very scary. Like I could have I think about myself, uh, I can use some people in my cohort that I was going to college with, uh, you know, I could have completed my education, gone on to be a teacher. I've seen some of my friends, uh, you know, get into trouble with in their positions as teachers as, and then as professors, uh, you know, I've seen a number of people, uh, whether it was inappropriate stuff that happened with their students or uh, substance abuse issues. I've just watched people take those bad habits from college and then move on into their adult life late into their 20s, now middle into our 30s, uh, and, you know, watch those issues rear their head, um, destroy marriages and families and that sort of thing. So that just as easily could have been me. So in some regards, I'm really happy that I just you know, got it all over with and had a massive, my, I blew up my life in my early twenties so I could spend, 
uh, my twenties rebuilding it and, uh, hopefully with a pretty good foundation. So. I, I take your point entirely. I have to check myself, uh, maybe, um, you know, this, uh, this sort of what if, or if then logic is, it, it sort of shows my, uh, cards, uh, maybe more than I'm willing. And it, it, it sort of indicates this sort of risk framed lens that, uh, um, that too often, um, we perceive the world. I think it's far better. We're far better served taking a more of a sort of good lives model approach. Um, and you're right. I wonder how helpful it is to focus on what, what could have been um, rather than taking stock in all the things that are going well now. So indeed there is a, uh, a lesson here in, in, you know, highlighting uh, the virtues of overcoming adversity and focusing on resilience and what it takes to desist from, uh, you know, from wrongdoing or whatever the case may be. I want to ask about your, um, your opinion. One of the themes that keeps coming up on, on the show, one of the things that I'm keenly interested in this sort of juxtaposition between um, people's individual internal locus of control, that is their, their view that they have autonomy over their situation versus sort of a forced um, or a coercive or an external focus of behavioral control. In your case, you know, being forced to have an intervention uh, placed upon you, like going to jail. Can you shed light on, on this? uh, Is this resonating with you at all in your experience, the difference between an internal and an external locus of behavioral control? Oh, yeah. One of your other guests was talking about when they were sentenced, uh, you know, there was this almost a sense of relief and a sense of serenity. The Surrender Experiment, I believe, is a book uh, by Michael Singer about um, meditation mostly. But I, you know, that message resonates a great deal about uh, this this paradox we have as human beings that, you know, an infinity of choice is almost in its own way, crippling and oppressive. (laughs) So when you find your options limited, all of a sudden, uh, there is this freedom in that, uh, reduction of, you know, so that you don't have that paradox of choice, that overwhelming freedom, uh, which yeah, is a very scary thing to come to terms with that. Yeah. It's freedom it can be terrifying and overwhelming. And so how do we, you know, still be free in our lives and, and, you know, enable other people to be free, but also be truthful about this fact that sometimes too much choice is a bad thing. (laughs) Yeah. Although on the flip side, I guess, um, you know, not having enough choice or at least the perception that you're stuck, uh, can also lead to, you know, harmful self-harm or, uh, or, or issues. So I guess the lesson here is about moderation and finding balance, um, creating choice in the case that you feel stuck and, uh, uh, and reducing your choices to focus on what is meaningful, you know, when there's an abundance of, of choice, the surrender experiment, uh, in New York times bestseller, I'll link that in uh, show notes for this episode. That's uh, a good tidbit. Oh, yeah. What other um, resources or what else can you point folks in the direction of, um, I mean, in, in penology, uh, you know, the, the study of uh, responding to crime, 
you know, there's this sort of ongoing question of what works. And uh, it seems to be talking with people who have had criminal justice intervention and have, you know, not recidivated or managed to keep away from the criminal justice system. These are the stories that we need to be hearing about. So you alluded earlier to, uh, uh, you referenced how to justice. Mm -hmm. I know that you're a, uh, an avid podcast fan and you mentioned a, a variety of different podcasts that I think have helped you process trauma. Let's talk about some of the things that you've, um, that you've, uh, recently put into your toolkit. Oh man. Uh, yeah. One of the, I've heard a similar response uh, in some of your interviews. You know, often people are like, oh, this this should be a book or, you know, write a story about your experience. And uh, for me, I don't find the story itself too fascinating. You know, it's pretty, uh, you know, alcoholism, getting involved in the legal, you know, the story itself doesn't have the ingredients of a very compelling story. Uh, but what I find more interesting is all the books and those, you know, the resources that I encountered. So that's the only thing I've personally been interested in is organizing and writing a little bit of a digest about all the, the books and radio programs. Because I had a radio in my cell in prison uh, that were helpful to me throughout my time. So that's a really long list. Uh, I mean, I have a small list of 19 books, 13 podcasts, uh, you know, and a number of other things that have been helpful since because I didn't have access to podcasts while I was in prison. But uh, yeah, I'm happy to talk about anything. I mean, meditation. Yeah, wherever you want to begin, I, I could start with you know, the first books I got when I got locked up in jail. I don't know where you want to start with that. Yeah, let's, um, I, I think, well, I'll, I'll come back and ask you about uh, the idea of mindfulness and meditation, because it sounds like you, you maintain uh, a practice of that. Um, I wonder if you could, yeah, sh I mean, maybe could you help us understand the experience of when things, when the bars sort of hit home um, and things were sinking in for you of, of, uh, of, of maybe, you know, being confined or being forced to face the realities of, of, uh, of an intervention that maybe wasn't your choice. Was there relief for you at that moment or was, was there some resistance and hesitancy? Oh yeah. I, I mean, I guess as far as the story component, there was this really kind of a romantic story arc there that really created a positive tone for my time in prison. Uh, I was lucky enough to be able to uh, post bond, I guess, bond or bail. I don't even know the difference between the two, unfortunately. But yeah, I was able to post bond or bail um, so that I was, you know, out and about waiting until my prison sentence uh, was handed to me. Uh, so when I refused to comply with probation, um, I, I still had a number of weeks at least before I knew that I would be sentenced to probably some prison time. And in that, I really, I don't know, there was just this impetus all of a sudden, kind of like receiving a, a bad medical diagnosis of like, wow, what do I want to do with these three or four weeks before I go off to prison for, you know, in, in some regards, I, I really didn't know how long I was in such a bad way. I hate to say that I, 
I wasn't even sure of the parameters of what my sentence might be. So I thought I might get more time than three years. Anyways, I was like, I had this little list of things that I had been wanting to do and hadn't done. So there were places I wanted to go hiking and that sort of thing. Friends I wanted to see. Uh, so I went off and visited friends, uh, had this amazing chance encounter. My, my buddy actually got us lost on this hiking trail. And as we were hiking along, we, we saw a road up kind of like a highway. Uh, so we went to it and this little puppy came running out towards us and it came out and crossed the highway and a truck was speeding down through the mountains and it had to slam on its brakes <laughs> to avoid smashing this little puppy. And luckily the dog just kind of rolls over on the road and like on its back out of fear or whatever. And the truck stops, you know, with the bumper hovering right above it, but not touching the dog. So a very dramatic little thing. And then this beautiful woman uh, at the house where the puppy had come from, she comes like, you know, everybody's <laughs> in suspense, like, oh my gosh, what happened? The truck driver hops out to make sure the dog's okay. And we all converge on that point. And, you know, the dog is not harmed. And it just so happens that the the beautiful woman had been in a college class with my buddy who I was hiking with. And he goes, oh my gosh, I, I'm so silly, but we've, we've gotten lost. Uh, could you give us a ride back to the trailhead where our vehicle is? And as it just so happened, um, me and that beautiful woman, we, we hit it off and she really, um, she filled my cup, so to speak, with a lot of love and dignity and compassion in those weeks before I was sentenced that really enabled me to go into prison with, uh, optimism and like a, a full heart and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. You're describing um, these sort of, um, I mean, on the one hand, there's this sort of uncertainty. Uh, just for a point of clarity, you you referenced the idea of probation. But if I understand correctly, you were awaiting sentence. Uh, so you were more, is it possible that you were more likely on bail um, while on while released to the community? Is that the sort of thing? Or was there a previous sentence that involved probation? So if, if you refuse or otherwise fail to comply um, with any of your terms and conditions of probation or parole, uh, you can then be pulled into jail and then you're awaiting a court date to be resentenced or, you know, something like that. So that, that was my situation is I had been pulled in for refusal to comply um, and I had then again bailed and bonded out of jail awaiting my sentence for probation refusal to comply. I see. Yeah. Right. So you were serving a, a, the, the probation part of your sentence, which uh, resulted in some sort of a breach and, uh, and found yourself back in custody. Yeah. Thereby sort of illustrating the sort of net that uh, people can get entangled by um, that's described as sort of a penal net where people, whether it be conditions of probation, parole, um, um, you know, um, bail, uh, whatever the case may be, they're all pathways that can lead uh, back to the criminal justice system oh. and create some <laughs> yeah. un uncertainty. I would love to take us down the statistics rabbit hole of that. Yeah, over 50% of people in America who are in, in prison or jail right now are there for some sort of 
probation or so not their primary offense. They are not there because of a crime. They are there because of their inability to comply with the yeah, very challenging restrictions of probation and parole. Their inability or, or refusal, I guess, uh, uh, as the law might see it. But, you know, it's, it's staggering to think that um, there, there's sort of a decoupling here between rates of imprisonment and crime rates. I mean, in fact, violent crimes um, have statistically been going down since uh, the 1990s or so. And yet, um, in the United States especially, but all around the world, you know, rates of uh, imprisonment have gone up and rates of community supervision have gone um, far, ha- have reached far wider. So I, um, yeah, on that sort of uh, more abstract thinking, but I like I like where you went there. As a criminology, you know, uh, a fun thing to interject on that is, um, so I went into my probation officer because my original sentence was six years of probation. I went into my probation officer and I said, I cannot afford my classes that you're trying to send me to. Um, And it was just this funny legalese interaction of her saying, um, do you refuse to comply with your probation? And I said, oh, I would love to comply with my probation. I'm just showing you. And I pulled out my bank statements. I said, I'm trying to show you. I can, like, I do not currently have the monies. Like, let's do the math on my rent, my, you know, insurance, all these fixed expenses. And I was like, okay, there's that. And then because of the prohibitive nature of my probation, and how challenging it is for me to have a job because these classes are scheduled at such and such a time that actually interferes with my ability to go to a normal nine to five. I was doing construction at the time, uh, you know, because of this, like I, I'm just telling you the dollars are not there. And she just repeated it again. Are you saying you uh, refuse to comply with probation? And I said, no, I'm happy to comply. (laughs) There's just a money issue. And that's how I got written up for a refusal to comply with probation. So that is that the basis of your, of your breach charge for returning that. So the basis was the fact that you couldn't afford to attend the ostensibly the rehabilitative programming that you were being assigned. Okay. Well now we have to venture down here. I wanted to just (laughs) remark on, you know, and and ask you, I just, just to conclude on the earlier thought, I mean, you're, you're neatly packaging this up regarding the, uh, um, you know, having filled your cup with this young lady. And, um, I, you know, I think there's something to be said about gratitude mm-hmm. here. Is that something that you, did you appreciate that at the moment? Or is this in hindsight that you've uh, gained perspective? Oh, abs- I, I was lucky enough to know that, um, you know, I, I was, as it's been discussed on your show before, I've, I was very Suicide was high on the mind. It seemed like a really great idea <laughs> for a lot of this period of my life. Uh, so, yeah, Chelsea really changed a lot of that. She really helped me re-examine or reconsider myself as a worthwhile human being um, instead of kind of the, the pit of depression and alcoholism that I had been in for so many years. Um, and the, you know, prison just underscored and confirmed all of this self-loathing and self-sabotage. So she really helped provide a counterpoint to that, which I, 
I was able to recognize almost, you know, in, in real time that without her positive intervention before prison, I might've gone into prison. I, I, yeah, I, I shudder to think at what of it, what it might've been like to go in without her support. Mm-hmm. That dreaded what if, uh, imagination mm-hmm. where, uh, you know, we, we realize that, uh, if perception is projection, then, um, you know, we, we must be mindful of where our thoughts, uh, lead oh, us. Yeah. Can you, uh, tell us then about, um, well, I, this, this person in your, your life, is that someone that's still, uh, important to you, this woman? <laughs> uh, she's, her story is really fascinating. Um, so we met just about a month before I went to prison and she was going to one college and not really enjoying her her experience there. Um, and she had learned about my college, which had an out, an emphasis on outdoor education. And uh, so that was very exciting to her. She ended up transferring to my, my college. And uh, let's see. So I was sentenced. And then she went to my college. And the story that she's told me uh, after I got out was that she kind of got into some drug use, which, of course, you know, bad, like the depression. I don't know, the emotional turmoil that she experienced after I was sentenced uh, apparently was significant and, you know, led her to some dark places. Uh, But the good news here is that she was going to this college and uh, there was someone there. Uh, who was offering an opportunity to work in Nepal as essentially as like a, a guide of some sorts or something like that. Um, so great news is that, you know, before she got to go down that dark hole too far, uh, she volunteered for this opportunity to go work in Nepal. And that is where she's been ever since. <laughs> so <laughs> we got, we have been able to visit uh, each other once, but yeah, she ultimately ended up marrying the founder and director of that program. And uh, yeah, I couldn't be happier for her. And then some, something to be said here about, you know, change in environment and, uh, and how that can, you know, impact your, your outlook and prospects oh, yeah. um, in life. So I, I'm I'm curious to know all about the relationship you had with uh, with your probation officer. Tell <laughs> tell everything about uh, about that negotiating and navigating. Was it six years uh, that you completed then after the prison term, or how how did that no, how did that pan out? Just on another, you know, geeking out about criminology numbers and process and all that sort of stuff. So um, my original sentence six years of probation. Um, I, I still, I don't know how this works exactly, but, um, somehow it's kind of like if this, then that, or like, I don't know how the flow chart works on these decision branch trees or whatever. Uh, but ultimately because I did the three years, that meant that the six years of probation was no longer applicable to me. So, I was given, I believe, I can't even remember if it was two or three years of parole after prison. So luckily, um, I know I completed it within a year and a half because they really gave me a lot of good time or time served or something for my parole. So it was relatively quick. 
Let, let me see if I'm fully understanding this. So you are in front of the courts at something like the age of 22 mm-hmm. for, correct me if I'm wrong, did you say it was an aggravated assault? An assault, yeah. Yeah, an, an assault. Mm-hmm. And the sentence initially was six years of probation, which you couldn't adhere to or you you were unable to comply with. Mm-hmm. So you found yourself back in custody. Is that right? Correct. Yep. That's anybody who, yeah, violates gets pulled back in. Yep. And as a result of that violation and returning back to court, you were then uh, sentenced instead of six years probation to three years prison, which you satisfied most of ostensibly one or two thirds of that sentence. Or did you do the full three years? Yeah, man, the math, I can do it, but, uh, it was yeah, it's okay. It doesn't 20, matter. But twenty eight months or something like that. Yeah, a little. I see. More than two and a little a half. shy. Yeah, just Fun. under three and, and, years. Yeah, but they are also then you were you know tackled on with another couple of years of parole. Exactly. Yep. Which which is more which is even more onerous, I think, than probation in the first place. I was lucky for me. Um, I'm not exactly sure. You know all these. You know, yeah, like some of the other people on your show have mentioned, your life can change so drastically from probation officer to probation officer or parole officer to parole officer. So for myself, um, when I transferred to South Dakota to do my parole, um, my parole officer, I saw maybe three or four times in two years. We did a lot of our check-ins over the phone. And, uh, yeah, I complied with, I was able to comply with all of the demands of parole and I was off paper, as they say, uh, that's mm-hmm. all of your stuff is satisfied. Uh, I was off paper within two years. Yeah. Right. I, I'm just, um, keenly interested in this subject because, um, you know, it's, you know, often when people think of criminal justice, the first thing that comes to mind is the prison. Mm-hmm. And of course, um, the walls of the prison are not as definite as um, one might think at first glance. You know, the invisible issue here, uh, the thing that is unseen is often the the disposition served in the community. At least that's where vast majority of people are are serving their sentences and uh, probation would be a good example of that. Were you also doing uh, the, was the probation also in South Dakota? And if so, uh, was there fees? Like, tell me more about the, the fee structure uh, if you can. Uh, probation was in Colorado. Um, but right. yeah, there were a number of treatment classes and their price ranges, their prices ranged from 20 to $40 a session. So having to go to multiple classes, multiple drug tests, multiple breathalyzers, um, you know, and then there was a therapist in addition to the group classes. So the therapist sessions were less frequent, but anyways, you compile all that together and that was an excess of a hundred dollars a week of, um, for me to comply with that probation, which was just not feasible. And, you know, I don't mean to harp on an old uh, <laughs> point in beating a dead horse here, but I'm just trying to uh, shed light on for, for how many folks, you know, th- this is just not feasible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, how tied uh, criminal justice seems to be to things like economic and social status. Oh, um, man. <laughs> one, <laughs> yeah. One, I one mean, of the things I, I, I 
I've just been so fascinated just to conclude on that point, And then you can tell me whatever you like. I, I was amazed to learn in the States, some States require you to pay for the opportunity just to be supervised. Mm-hmm. This was, um, this was fascinating to me. This is not like, uh, like I've understood it to be in other places in the world, like in Canada. Yeah. Oh man. It's, uh, You've joked before on your show that, you know, everything seems to be on a political spectrum. And, uh, yeah, I know that, you know, you don't have an explicitly leftist agenda or anything like that. But, you know, any examination of the criminal justice system, especially here in the United States, really makes someone inclined to say some radically leftist sort of things. Like uh, Noam Chomsky has in his Requiem for the American Dream, uh, the expression manufacturer of consent. But anyways, where I'm going with that, just like you're saying, it's like, what kind of what kind of sadistic, twisted system do we live in where, yeah, people are actually paying for their own subjugation, for their own oppression? <laughs> like, wow. <laughs> I, I, I love that. You know, manufacturing consent or a, a more uh, layman way of describing it is, you know, you can decide how you want to organize um, um, your 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 government, um, and different governments choose you know either carrot or stick, mm-hmm. and um, you can provide social you know welfareism principles on the front end and provide for things like housing and access to uh, you know um, addictions therapy or whatever the case may be early on in life, or you can provide it on the back end, um, you know through and through through a lot of stick slapping of the stick so to speak and uh, clearly the u.s is is um, foremost leader in terms of imprisonment rates uh, by far uh, globally uh, and and so it's clear that uh, yeah i take your point about manufacturing consent and the coerciveness of it all yeah so but um flipping around to a more positive view then um i i'm you know i want to get back to this sort of digest of books, radio programs and things, podcasts that have worked for you. You suggested a few to me. Um, Ear Hustle uh, was one of, of interest. Uh, criminal, 70 million, Inner Circle. Uh, I'll link those in the show notes as well. I, I take issue you know, with this sort of appetite for true crime these days. I think there's such an utter lack of justice in, uh, in, in getting the full picture or the real, uh, you know, oftentimes it's just so sensational. Oh yeah. Yeah. Lately I'm, I'm, I'm drawn, uh, to this, um, case of, um, of the, the, uh, the unfortunate, uh, fate of Gabby Petito in, uh, in Wyoming. And this has been all the craze in us media uh, mm-hmm. that I've been watching. Uh, yeah. and so I'm guilty. Uh, I'm guilty of this as well. But, um, but I don't think that you know, true crime does justice in giving sense of, of the realities and actualities of, of uh, real experiences with the criminal justice system. Yeah, that's why I spent the majority of this summer uh, really going down a rabbit hole uh, with these podcasts and other resources that I can, books and articles that I can find. Uh, because, you know, as a Oh boy, so many directions to go, but, uh, speaking, referring directly to how and why prison was such a positive experience is because, uh, again, some leftist talking points, you know, like our, 
our community, our village has been decimated by capitalism, really, and uh, neoliberalism, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, there is so much isolation that seems to be intentionally manufactured because of a divide and conquer sort of thing. And so the very surprising benefit of prison is that you're in this, you're in this community. And it's really amazing to be in this place where I was in a cell block with, oh, it was three stories high and had, I think something close to 300 people in it. Um, so, you know, that was like my, my village, my community of, of peers. And of course I didn't get along with everybody, but I was in a way where <clears throat> at least there was peace, you know, there was camaraderie, there was, you know, solidarity amongst so many of us. And it was a really amazing experience. And I, I truly haven't had anything like that since. So. I, I just want to touch on uh, this, you know, you, you uh, rightly point out, uh, the links to uh, the economy again through capitalism and, and neoliberalism. Um, and I'm thinking of the work of uh, Nils Christie, who was a fantastic criminologist and he wrote a book called crime control as industry. And um, you know, it's of concern that, you know, livelihoods, including my career based on criminology is, uh, is one that arguably is, exists on the backs of, of people who, um, you know, who are too often incarcerated and too often made the subject of uh, state intervention. Um, could you offer clarification what you mean when you say about, you know, leftist talking points? Um, <laughs> help, help me understand that you're sort of couching it, what you, what you say in, in this way. Help me understand uh, why you do that and what you mean by that. Yeah. Oh, it's just so assailable and polarized as saying like, Oh, it's because capitalism, like, but, but yeah, I mean, just follow the money, really follow the, just like you said, I, I don't believe about yourself as a criminologist necessarily, but yeah, the perverse incentives I've written a piece about, um, really, I just compiled every episode that John Oliver ever, ever has done about the criminal justice system and he has over 20 episodes that he's dedicated on his show uh, to all of the problems with our system. And it all comes down to perverse incentives because really you just follow the money and you see that there are a lot of people who, you know, just benefit from the system being the way it is. And so take, for example, if you've watched the 13th Amendment on Netflix where it's talking about how slavery slavery was abolished, right? But if you are a criminal, you can be enslaved. You can labor can be extracted you for free or for, you know, almost nothing. Uh, yeah, it's like, well, this system is obviously engineered to extract value from people whether it's cash paid fees for, you know, probation compliance or yeah, supervision like God, how sick that uh, people who are detained because of immigration issues have to pay hundreds of dollars a month just so they can wear a bracelet so they can attend hearings to, yeah, you know, validate the fact that they're seeking refuge. Like, what a sick system. So, yeah, why do I couch it that way? Because it sounds, I sound like a 
a rabid raving leftist, but it's real. It's the economics are the incentives that shape our criminal justice system to be what it is. Yeah, I, I'm so glad you went there because um, people, you know, could say that the system is broken. Um, but actually, I think it might be more instructive to to f- take your point and, and follow the money. I mean, arguably, it's working precisely as it was designed to. Yeah. And um, so, you know, following up the, on your Netflix uh, reference there to the 13th Amendment and slavery, um, you know, I'm, I'm mindful of... Uh, you know the, the the backstory of our Truth and Reconciliation Day in Canada was um, much to do with residential schools and uh, the need to reconcile um, what what has been described as a, a very um, very saddening legacy of colonization. So I wonder your perspective in context of the gross overrepresentation of Indigenous people and in the U.S. Black people. Um, you know where do you how do you make sense of uh, this idea of colonization in context of the modern prison? Oh, it's it's still happening. You're you really cracked open, yeah, Pandora's box there on one of my favorite conversations. Is yeah, colonization is still happening. Uh, let's see, Leonard Peltier, Russell Means. Russell Means is a tribal attorney who I'd recommend anybody to look into. Um, a radical tribal activist uh, through the 60s, 70s, and into the 80s with the American Indian Movement. Uh, very controversial figure, which is one reason why I might be talking a little fast, because it's a it's always an awkward subject um, in my neck of the woods. Because why? Um, yeah, it's not so clear cut. Um, I would kind of maybe even refer to things like me too movement i don't know there there's a lot of when we think about so many of our historical figures um no matter how much i admire russell means for everything he's done for tribal issues and and native american issues um yeah he he has a lot of personal history um that is criticized so that's an unfortunate, just like Martin Luther King or, or even Gandhi has a lot of horrible things that have been said about Gandhi. <laughs> so, yeah. Hmm. Well, maybe we can tie it back into your own um, experience and, and sort of better help, help, help me understand how you've sort of come to find or um, how it is that you are in touch with your traditional roots uh, your mom, I think, mentioned you mentioned earlier that your mom wasn't supportive of you uh, exploring that heritage. Oh no, um, sorry. Have you got? She is. She was the primary. Um, it's my dad's a tribal member, and I'm a tribal member because of my father. But it was funny enough. My mom, who uh, she she really encouraged reading um, tribal stories and and just traditional practices and that sort of thing as i was growing up so i'm, I'm sorry about that however that might no have don't uh, i'm sorry yeah. my apologies yeah. and thanks for clarifying so do you do you have time how, how are we doing for time can you speak a little bit more about this um oh yeah th- these these roots of yours you know it's it's interesting being um a pale person on the reservation uh we have a special name that we're called uh, we're just called Insicas, and directly relating to Russell Means uh, we have a very nefarious history because 
in the similar ways that, for example, the FBI, you know, systematically destroyed the Black Panthers and the Black Power Movement um, in the 60s and 70s. Um, that's where Leonard, Leonard Peltier comes in to, you know, interview a political prisoner, someone who's been wrongfully incarcerated for decades. Um, I don't know if anybody, if you're aware, you know, of Leonard Peltier, but um, yeah, he's a tribal member who was wrongfully uh, convicted of killing, I believe, a federal officer. Uh, Anyways, that's neither here nor there as far as roots. What I'm trying to say is that Insikas, a.k.a. white passing tribal members, uh, were employed by the federal government to infiltrate positions of power in tribal government to undermine um, tribal sovereignty and tribal strength and, and prosperity. Interesting. Yeah. And, and so that's sort of a derogatory, derogatory term that, that, uh, that sticks with you now. I don't even know if it's derogatory. I mean, Washichu is, I really, <laughs> that's the more, that's <laughs> like, uh, I, I obviously not as bad as the N word because I'm saying it, but, um, you know, Washichu is a very, um, offensive term, but yeah. So, so I'm, I've misunderstood then. Uh, uh, so the, the 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 term that you're referring to, just say it again. In Insica. Yeah, Insica. Insica is a refers. It's like a pale to, pale tribal member. I see. Okay. Yeah, or white passing, if you wanted to use that term. Yeah. And the and the history of that comes from uh, the idea of having having infiltrated in the past. Oh, I don't know the et- etymology of that word, but um, okay. that's just what I know. What we're called, <laughs> why, right? Why, okay. Yeah, pale tribal members are are Insica, and and yeah, there's a very nefarious history there that everybody should know about <laughs> about the federal government interfering with foreign governments, and yeah, using race as the key uh, to that. Yeah, there's a rich uh, history here that's often untold in Canadian contexts, at least in school. And, uh, and it wasn't until I had, um, traveled abroad and learned more about, um, um, our history, um, from the context of outsiders, uh, that, that, that I sort of had my eyes open to some of the atrocities that have taken place in Canadian, uh, history. And, uh, without a doubt, there's that same problematic legacy that's occurred in the U S across various States and different regions, um, and so you're shedding just a bit of light into, into your neck of the woods. Oh yeah. It's, you know, it's such, uh, of course, not great that it's happening this way, but just like George Floyd and how these atrocities are developing awareness, I hope, and mobilizing action and reform. Uh, you know, yeah, the, the thing, what's being uncovered at these residential schools, these boarding schools, these, uh, concentration camps, whatever you want to call them. Uh, you know, this land is an amazing podcast that I would recommend to everyone as part of their citizenship, especially in the United States, because this land really reveals the nefarious way that tribal land was stolen again, a second time after, you know, treaties were violated and it, it gives you all the nooks and crannies through, you know, real 
real life testimony and thorough anecdotes about how even when tribal people secured clear title, um, you know, in legal designation to their, their property, their land, um, it was still then stolen from them by other means, by legal manipulation and that sort of thing. So I'd recommend that to anybody. Mm-hmm. So wh- where do you see um, some resolve? Uh, I mean, in your case, you've, you've taken a, what seems like an entirely, um, an entirely thoughtful and, and useful approach in sort of reconciling your, your past and making sense of your life now and, and into the future um, on a personal level, but on a, on a, on a wider scale, you know, there, there is something to be said about intergenerational trauma and, um, and, you know, the, uh, the legacy from colonization. Um, how, how do we begin to rectify this? You know, if it is entangled with the justice system, what, what's the first step? Like how, how do we go about finding resolve? I really didn't address the colonization question earlier as far as that continuum or the spectrum of it, uh, you know, and that's where all these things just connect. It's the string theory of colonization of criminal justice is that, you know, the system, like we said, is working exactly as how it was designed to work, which is yeah, to disempower people and to disenfranchise people and to extract value from people and that's that is colonization if uh let me pull up the definition because i've been using it a lot lately colonization refers to large-scale population movements where the migrants maintain strong links to their ancestors or their former country they gain significant privileges over the inhabitants of their territory colonization takes place under the protection of colonial structures This often involves the settlers dispossessing inhabitants or instituting legal and other structures which systematically disadvantage them. And then in this definition, there's something about economics. Uh, Don't worry about the verbatim quote, but, you know, it's essentially colonization is inherently economic. So when I referred to Russell Means earlier, I think some of the most valuable things he said in his interviews and that sort of thing is that he kind of in a very dark way, but you know, appropriate, he says uh, to the crowd as if he's speaking to, you know, the general white population or whatever, he's saying like, take, take notice, take heed, look at what they're doing on the reservations because they're just practicing on us so they can do it to you next. Mm -hmm. Dramatic pause. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's the reality of our system is that, yeah, regardless of our color, regardless of any of our other demographic features, yeah, the people in power are practicing and testing structures of oppression and extraction and and then, yeah, scaling them as as it suits them. I think we're we're talking about this sort of nefarious agenda um, that might be difficult to digest, you know, to play devil's advocate. People who work in the system, people who, you know, don't necessarily agree uh, or see it our way, um, you know, would would say that, you know, there does need to be intervention. There are harms that that are that are taking place. Um I'm looking at the notes that uh, that you shared. I've received them once and for all, and I see a, a note about Stanley Milgram 
and I'm I'm wondering about uh, tying in um, lessons to be uh-huh. learned from from Milgram's experiments and the sliding scale of. I mean, I'm also thinking of out loud uh, Philip Zambardo's work about you know how ordinarily good people can do extraordinarily evil things given the circumstances. Oh yeah. What what did what did you have to say about uh, Stanley Milgram and and how does that make sense yeah. in the context of our conversation? This is uh, so I'm working on this I, I guess a book a collection of essays called Invisible Bars and yeah it it, it leans on the history of sociology and talking about this and and very much agreeing with the dev, devil's advocate position that oh there, there's not you know whether or not I, I do not know and I do not necessarily subscribe to some conspiracy theory of some, you know, 1% Illuminati, any group like that. I, uh, it's great that you brought up both of those researchers because really, and unfortunately, this evil uh, looking at, if you look at emergent theory or chaos theory, um, emergent phenomena or chaos theory, you can see that you know, great complexity can emerge out of chaos without, you know, <laughs> there was no need for a divide, like a, an organizing force or an intent, like a central intent for these, these powerful people to engineer an evil system. Like it's just a collection of perverse incentives culminating in this very large system of a lot of perverse incentives at play and they feed each other because, you know, power gets power, begets power or power corrupts. So that doesn't mean that these people are all meeting in one place and creating a conspiratorial agenda. It just means that, yeah, unfortunately power corrupts and systems just feed themselves and grow in that way. So, yeah. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Mm-hmm. So somebody wise once told me, and that's always resonated with me. Um, all the more reason, I think, because I, I think abuse happens when there is unassailable authority and when you're unable to uh, interrogate you know, th- these uh, such circumstances. So all the more reason for us to be able to have conversations, uh, especially around divergent perspectives, um, although, as uh, as is the case with so many of my respondents, we seem to be preaching to the choir uh, because <laughs> I haven't found I haven't found much that we don't agree on, um, Mambo. Oh yeah. So I I wonder where what more uh, where where shall we take the direction uh, further? I'm curious to know what it is that you're looking forward to in future and uh, and what you have in store. Um, more about. Um, uh, about plans, your your upcoming project with um, the trail uh, trail running. Well, right there on this whole note of uh, let's just go with yeah this thing about power corrupting. So this idea of invisible bars um, and uh, about a year ago the book cast was put out by Isabel Wilkerson. So I think that's really informative to this conversation because even like we were saying, there's plenty of people, you know, there's plenty of uh, institutional correctional officers. You know, there are lots of good people in the system that are actively part of the system. And they, you know, yeah, they all have their own 
perspectives, justifications, rationales, whatever you want to call it of like, oh, but I do good work. And, and you know, some of those points are true. Um, and they're just fulfilling a role. They're earning a paycheck, whatever their motivations are and lots of them, you know, and that's where, yeah, I learned to appreciate that other old adage that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Like that became so clear to me in prison is that so many people are full of good intention in their complicity or their active roles in this system that, uh, you know, creates a story that, Oh yeah, this is rehabilitation. Oh, this is protecting society. Oh, this is, you know, all these narratives, but it's really just, it's, uh, it's just a, a veneer over the fact that we live in a strictly caste society. And so that's why I uh, recommend to anybody who cares to read anything about these sorts of issues, the book cast the origins of our discontents by Isabel Wilkerson, because it really lays bare this reality that you don't have to be a police officer. You don't have to be a correctional officer. You, you can be, you can be an unemployed person, but because of say your race or whatever, any components of your demography or your background, you understand implicitly and maybe, you know, yeah, you understand your position an elevated status in society. So that person who might be, let's just say an unemployed middle-aged white person understands that they exist above me in our society <laughs> because that's how caste works. And while we don't want to say that, and it sounds awkward and weird because people are like, no, this is America. We're the land of the free. It's like, no, we, we have this very solid caste structure that, that while we don't call it that, and we don't have nice clean graphics like other uh, social systems that might use religious rationale to explain this caste. Uh, we use bad sociology and bad psychology, science, you know, bad science to rationalize this caste system or just bigotry. But yeah, there's all sorts of ways that this caste system is built and enforced in our society. So I'd like to hit on that. And then like you were saying about power corrupting, I've been chewing on something a lot and on ear hustle recently, uh, they were interviewing a woman who had been um, trafficked uh, as a very young person as a minor. And she did, God, I think 20 years. She did an insane amount of time for killing her trafficker, which just in and of itself, just, just pause to absorb how horrific that is. And then I, I found something that just really hit hard with me when I heard her speaking, she was talking about how she had gotten out of prison and gotten married and just all these tools that she had learned and been equipped with over her years of incarceration. What happened, Mambo? Did I lose you? Oh no, I hope not. Mambo. There he is. Back again. Where'd you lose me? Do you know where you lost me? Uh, you, you were, you were, uh, you were just telling me about the um, young lady who had killed her trafficker, and then I lost you. So pick it up from there. Okay, that's a decent, yeah, place that we can splice things. 
So, um, yeah, sorry, my, I guess the Wi-Fi reset here at the hotel. Um, so not to worry. All right. So this woman has killed her trafficker. She did 20 years. I want to know for sure, but anyways, an insane amount of time. Horrendous in and of itself. She gets out of prison still, you know, younger than middle-aged because of how young she was when she had been sent to prison and she gets married and talks about this, this dissonance because she married someone without a record, um, how challenging it can be. And this is a weird, complex connection to caste and the weird just sociology and society that we live in because here she was and she was in this relationship. And uh, what really stuck out to me is when the interviewer asked her essentially like, do you think like, is it almost a detriment that you are so well equipped now that that creates a hurdle in your relationships? And that resonates with me in a huge way. Like I've really felt like there's, uh, I I've wanted to deny it. I've, you know, wanted to rationalize it away or, or what have you. But in my relationships that I've had since prison, I, I have not yet dated a person with any kind of criminal record, not even a misdemeanor really. Um, so there seems to be this huge barrier you could call it class, but, uh, you know, we could use all sorts of psychology terms as well, but you know, there, whatever it happens to be, there's this barrier, uh, it, it seems between us, myself, because I have friendships, long enduring friendships with people from before my time. So they knew me as a non, you know, non criminal, non felon, whatever you want to say. Um, and then these relationships with people since then, and the most enduring relationships I have to this day are with fellow um, justice impacted system impacted people, um, you know, because we can relate in this way. And what I'm also trying to communicate from the example of this woman who had been trafficked and other just evidence and stories that I've heard from people on an individual level is that there's this very demented byproduct of the system that we do have to go to these treatment programs, which teach us to analyze thinking errors and think about ourselves more critically, be quick to take accountability, be quick to admit fault, uh, you know, all these sorts of things, which then puts us at a, a, you know, we're already at a disadvantage because of um, stigma and all these other systemic issues for people with records, but add into it that personal internalized stuff, which I, I think is all well and good, but I really think it's, it's messed up to equip people with these tools. Like um, it's been mentioned on your show before cognitive behavioral therapy and all of these, you know, meditation and, and other forms of, of awareness and just self-criticism, whatever, all these tools. And then we are the least, like, we are deemed uncredible, incredible, or whatever. We are 
unreliable by society and less than, but it's like, wait a second, do these people in these positions of power or just these average citizens, like for example, from speaking without trying to sound too bitter. Yeah. in personal relationships, like how much therapy have you had for example? And like, how much have you had to work on your issues? And instead of people, you know, and largely I'm the conclusion I'm sort of drawing here is because they haven't had such a catastrophic event that has had to humble them in this kind of way. So many people who haven't had an encounter with the criminal justice system go through life with an arrogance that they are not even aware of an entitlement that they are not even aware of. <laughs> Just uh, to follow up on that in, in any of the conversation we've had thus far, is there a sense that you have, uh, uh, of, of my entitlement or, uh, no, no Rex, I'm sorry. That's not directed at you. Yeah. It's, it's a rhetorical, it's, just it's a rhetorical. Food for thought and like why I'm putting so many, you know, couching these phrases and putting so many asterisks and disclaimers. Of course there's good people. I have made at least one good friend since prison who doesn't have any sort of criminal record. That is, a, you know, obviously, but it is shocking and horrifying how often, this sort of caste, this sort of hierarchy uh, comes up. And even when people, it is kind of brought up to them, like, hey, are you marginalizing me? Like, are you just dismissing my feelings or my perspective because I'm a person with a record or something like that? And they'll deny it. But, you know, it's really hard when you keep on seeing this sort of marginalization and exploitation happen it's, I don't know, it's a theory is brewing. I'll say that. <laughs> well, I mean, you're, you're certainly on to, I mean, there's, 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 uh, I take your point, obviously there's structural issues back to the topic of colonization, trying to secure employment, for example, trying to um, access, uh, you know, I mean, in the case that your sentence involved uh uh, you know, outrageous fees trying to, um, you know, recover from the economic loss. I mean, there's countless examples. Having to internalize the shame that you're describing in being, um, you know, having wronged and being constantly reminded of the wrongdoing through, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking about uh, uh, people on registries, for example, um, the stigma that comes with sex offender registries, even finding you know, a, a dignified place to live. So I, I take your point entirely about um, this sort of sense of an underclass and, uh, and it's perpetual um, in, in the policies and the, the practices um, uh, and attitudes. I, 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 I agree. Is it, does that resonating with you? Does that, does Absolutely. That, does that landing? And that's, yeah, that's a lot of our work is I really, uh, I think people, need to recognize I'm not the first person to say anything like this, but um, I, I love that quote about if you've come here to help me uh, save yourself the trouble and, and go back to where you came from or whatever. But if you realize that our struggle is bound up together, then join me and let's work together. Something to that effect. Yeah. Well, that, I, that is, um, that resonates with me because I think, you know, as we mentioned earlier offline, you know, there's more to be said about what we share in common um, rather than how we are different when it comes to folks impacted by the justice system and being able to relate with uh, wrongdoers and recognizing our own wrongdoing is uh, all part 
and parcel to this conversation. Mm-hmm. Could you, um, I just want to ask further on this idea. You said dissidence and you were referring to the woman, um, um, shed light further on what you mean when you're talking about, I'm thinking of people who are involved with the justice system that might be listening that are on the, you know, that are employed by it, say, Mm. and who recognize that their livelihoods, um, you know, might be tied up in much of this problem, problematic, uh, uh, governance. Um, I mean, that would create cognitive dissidence for them, I imagine. Yeah. What are you referring to when you talk about dissidence? I don't remember saying that, but I'm happy to take that and say uh, it made me think of, have you ever heard the the talk, This is Water? No. I'm trying to remember the author. Um, but anyways, uh, a famous author who ultimately killed himself, uh, he did a commencement speech once about this story it has a couple fish, you know, two young fish, let's say swimming through the ocean and an older fish swims by and goes, Hey fellas, how's the water today? And the two fish keep on swimming on. And, and a little bit while later they say, what is water? And the, you know, it's a very long commencement speech that then describes, you know, if you're not made aware, you know, some things are so, omnipresent in your life that unless someone goes out of their way to point it out to you, you don't even know it exists. So in this example with water, uh, so to the cognitive dissonance of a person who's employed as an attorney, as an enforcement officer, whatever their role may be, even the therapist, the well-meaning, you know, social workers and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, so many of them just believe, well, this is the system. This is, there is no questioning. It's just, this is the system. There's no, uh, you know, broader consideration of, of, yeah, maybe backing up. And that's why I think the understanding of the, the immense scale and scope of colonization is kind of, to me, it's that equivalent of like, Hey, this is water. Like you are in it. (laughs) Like it is happening. Hard to read the label if you're inside the box. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Les Brown. I'm I'm thinking of the motivational speaker, uh, which is a phrase I love. But I've also heard your point. Uh, you know, how is it that a goldfish can manage? You know, to understand the water around it. Well, I um I, I'm just thinking of of concluding on this big question and I don't know if we'll come to a an answer or not um, but I hear some I don't know if disdain is too hard of a word but I, I hear your <laughs> your frustration I hear the frustration and especially with this idea of sort of identifying with an underclass and all the barriers that come with it mm-hmm. uh, but earlier we did speak of you know having a strong internal locus of control, and now we're confronted with this sort of external issue that is beyond our control. Um, how do you reconcile those two things? And that's a great year, man, what a beautiful setup because yeah, this, this whole thing, this issue uh, in some regards, yeah, there's no way to, there's nothing you can do about it because like I'm talking about emergent phenomenon, there is no root necessarily. There is no soul source of a thing that you can just eliminate 
and and then all of a sudden, oh, we're all liberated and we're all equal and colonialism and oppression are gone. <laughs> there is no root, one singular place that we can a- address or, other, you know, whatever. There's no easy solution to this. And that's that external. These are these externalities that to some degree we just have to accept because unfortunately human beings, uh, I just Octavia Butler, I heard an Octavia Butler quote uh, earlier in the year that um, we were hierarchical, hierarchical beings or whatever. Hierarchy is such a part of us that, um, you know, it existed way before we ever had words. So even if we have words to deconstruct our hierarchy, um, it's still in us. It's part of our, you know, just our instincts, unfortunately. And it's on us to then overcome those impulses, those lower order impulses uh, as we grow as human beings. And then, so where, where does that bring us to what do we have control of? And, and like I just said, what we have the control, we have the ability to be humble and generous and thoughtful and mindful. We have that ability. And furthermore to, yeah, where, where I am at today is facilitating outdoor experiences, organizing with other formerly incarcerated people and, and in how to justice, we've got this term of just system impacted, which, you know, includes, I just recently heard the term secondarily incarcerated or whatever, like friends and family, you know, people who experience the carceral state, even if they never spend a day behind bars. Um, you know, so all of these system impacted people, if we can get together in a more, on a more regular basis. And for me personally, the, exciting part like fitness has always been a huge part of my life and it is just yeah through like we were talking about trauma and all these other things you know just what is in your control and one thing that's in your control is is generally like the things that you eat on a daily basis the amount of sleep you allow yourself to have you know you have these what do you have control over and how can you maximize that for yourself to be the healthiest, happiest person you can be? And, and that in its own, um, I heard you say revenge uh, is a life well lived, uh, on another one of your episodes. And, uh, so that's kind of that same sort of thing, like the best way. Oh man, it's a tough thing to say, but yeah, the best, one of the best things we can do to push back against this oppression and marginalization is to just live a, live a good life and to be healthy and happy and sing and laugh (laughs) going back to my name, you know, sing and laugh with each other. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, um, well, it's humbling to hear your story and, um, these types of things always, uh, sort of resonate after, after the fact, I, I think, you know, I just want to, uh, highlight that I, you know, I agree. Um, I think, you know, there is in fact very little in life that we can control with the exception of how we go about perceiving, um, our lives. And, uh, I choose to believe that, you know, life is, uh, something like, um, 10%, you know, what is, uh, given to you and, and 90% how you, how you make it or, um, and I agree, you know, revenge and um, the best revenge is living well. 
So I, um, I want to wish you um, the, the most success in uh, trail club. And I'm hoping that folks might, uh, might reach out and I'll be glad to, to do my best to connect you uh, with them. So, so folks can connect through Rex Crimshaw at gmail.com. Um, but I want to give you the final word Mambo. So uh, what, what, uh, what else are we looking forward to and um, what uh, final note of inspiration can you leave us with for folks who, who are system impacted and might be struggling at the moment? Boy, I don't want to say anything that sounds too trite and so many, so much of it. I just want to repeat again. Yeah. Do focus on the things you can control. I'd love to join you again for a conversation about how that took place in prison, but yeah, just focus because yeah, what can you control and and then, yeah, go out of your comfort zone to connect with people, uh, especially people who, yeah, it's difficult and scary because of all the pratfalls of especially connecting with other system impacted people. But, you know, let's let's build that together. So, yeah, please reach out and hopefully we can build something together that, you know, gives us that sense of home, that sense of community that I, I've heard from a lot of my fellow formerly incarcerated people, you know, we're missing that. So let's try to find a way to build that uh, on the outside.